1: President, founder and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Welcome to today's teleconference where we will discuss and analyze with you H-1B RFE or request for evidence, status, control and specialty occupation related issues, which we're all unfortunately seeing way too often with H-1B cases. I'm honored to introduce to you two of our brilliant attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, Kevin Andrews, who is the attorney coordinator of the H-1B non-immigrant visa department at the Murthy Law Firm, and who's been with the firm now almost 10 years. Uh, And uh, TJ Sashi, who we always call as TJ, another brilliant, smart, knowledgeable attorney who's been with the firm close to 10 years, seven or eight years at this point. Um, And we are going to analyze and discuss sort of a quick overview and background about trends that we are seeing with requests uh, of for evidence or RFEs on H-1B cases that are being filed. So as you know, USCIS is currently processing H-1B cap cases that they received in the recent past since April 1st of this year. And then since early March of 2017, the USCIS uh, announced that they would suspend premium processing causing, obviously, a flood of premium processing cases to be filed before the 31st of March 2017, though they are talking about recently in the conference about probably opening it up in phases in due course. USCIS is also issuing RFEs at a very high rate on many of the premium processing and cases filed in the past several months. We expect to continue to see an uptick in RFEs for cap cases And we expect to continue to see more and more of that happening as they keep opening and processing H-1 cap cases. The Murthy Law Firm cases that were selected in the cap were approximately 50 percent, which is actually high, uh, much higher than in prior years. So I don't know if it's that's because of how brilliantly we did it, because of the lesser number of cases being filed, because of the economy and because of the Trump factor or what, what have you. Um, And so the USCIS is tending to use very standard templates for their RFEs. Virtually all of these RFEs are asking about one of the two or the three or four issues. The issues are First, right of control, which is also—is there an employer-employee relationship between the parties? Second, is this truly a specialty occupation? Analyzing the beneficiary's qualifications and determining whether the qualifications actually match the job that needs to be performed. And three, the benefic- uh, the and uh, three, the main maintenance of status. Has the particular beneficiary or employee actually maintained their status in the United States? Uh, I must tell you that during the uh, American Immigration Lawyers Association or AILA annual conference in New Orleans, which just occurred uh, June 21st to June 24th of 2017, uh, very recently, we had several senior uh, government officials talk about different issues on H-1B from USCIS. And we also had on one Worksite Enforcement Interagency Panel from Homeland Security Investigations, from Immigration and Customs Enforcement, part of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and the Immigrant and Employee Rights Panel uh, Agency, which is part of the U.S. Department of Justice, talking about why and how contractors and consulting companies are going to be targeted more and more for investigations and worksite enforcement. So it's not a pretty picture, and they are looking under the hood a lot. So with that, if I can get started with the big, big, big issue, Kevin, which starts with right of control, employer-employee relationship, what are we seeing and what, how can an employer try to approach and answer these kinds of RFEs? Thank
2: you, Sheila. Yes, yeah, so right to control or, as you mentioned, employer-employee relationship, sometimes called availability of specialty occupation work, all of these uh, subsections in the request for evidence are things that USCIS has actually been asking about for several years now, and we're starting to see a continued uh, uptick in the, in the request for the employer-employer relationship cases, uh, uh, petitions that are filed, particularly for cases that are involving IT consulting companies. If it's uh, an H-1B dependent employer, obviously if you're selecting yes to the third party work location question on the H-1B petition, this is going to increase the likelihood that USCIS would issue a request for evidence on this issue, regardless of whether you are submitting documentation, I think, in the initial filing. I think we're still seeing, even if there's an end client letter and contracts, requests for additional, this is insufficient evidence, please provide more. And also, I think that the the question, there's a emerging question about whether the use of the level 1 wage on the LCA is creating a higher level of scrutiny also increasingly fraud detection national security or FDNS many of you may have heard of FDNS they are now checking the end client if you're selecting yes to third party work location and an IT consulting company with third party work the USCIS is increasingly using FDNS increasingly confirming the uh, evidence of the work location and contacting the end clients before the H-1B petition is adjudicated. So, from the time that you file until adjudication, some of these checks are now being initiated before adjudication. FDNS has been around for as I think at least 2012 or 2013 and in the past FDNS under the prior administration typically if they were going to initiate an investigation would do so post adjudication, maybe a physical site inspection or just an email check, but we're seeing the FDNS program being used in this much more intensive way. And. Um, <clears throat> So I think it's creating a burden, I think, on companies or increasing a burden that already existed for documenting the right to in control. In fact,
1: recently Kevin was just talking about how, in a very bizarre case, the USCIS sent a request to the end client or the third-party company asking about the contractor, and before the employer could reply, they gave them less than one day to reply, and then issued a denial on the H-1 petition, which is crazy. That means if you're traveling, you're out, you don't get back in half a day or a day. They're basically saying, sorry, we could not verify the information, so we're denying the case, which sounds ridiculous. Yeah, and, and
2: scary. And, and, well, yeah, that's right, because in, in that case, it was filed premium processing. I guess the FDNS adjudicator, uh, contractor or, or, or inspector felt the need to turn around this information quickly because of the 15-day processing time, and this sort of operated as a You know, a a negative impact on the company, asking for paying twelve hundred dollars and asking for that premium processing service, only to get this quick denial because the end client wasn't able to turn around some information within like a four or five hour period. So yeah, we are appealing that decision, but
1: that's ridiculous and scary. And I think we should, to use pardon the language, sue the bastards, sue them because they really need to know what they need to be doing. And we say this all the time in immigration lawyers conferences that they can't be tricky and sneaky. They have to follow the law. And it almost looks like we have forgotten that the fundamental bedrock and foundation of this country and this constitution and the rule of law is the U.S. Constitution. And I think we need to bring tell them that how to do their job right. But talking about evidence, what kind of evidence should the employer try to provide in terms of the best evidence to respond to these issues, TJ?
2: Yeah,
0: certainly. So now with the prevalence of, of these investigations and the higher scrutiny, um, imposed on you know, IT workers at third-party sites, it really is important to document the case as strongly as you can. And, and the best evidence that, that I see from my experience is letters from the end client and any vendors. And not just letters saying, yes, this person's working here, this person's needed to work here, but these letters really do need to, to establish the job details, the project duration, and also that the is actually being controlled and supervised by the H-1B petitioner, and I found this extremely important in these types of cases because USCIS doesn't necessarily, they really want to see from the end client mm-hmm. what the beneficiary is doing at the worksite. And absent that information, they, they do have a problem with, with these types of cases. Additional evidence that you can can include is contracts between all the parties. One thing that you really want to do, want to look look out for when you are submitting contracts, is. Sometimes some of the information the contracts is a little inconsistent. It may not long may no longer be any be relevant or whatnot, but it but it can hurt the case. So, before submitting any contracts, statements of work, etc., uh, they should be really thoroughly reviewed. And especially if you have letters from other parties. That's generally sufficient to to get an approval.
2: Yeah, we've seen cases where USCIS will parse the language, and like subsection thirteen mm-hmm. says that there's this little provision where in a, it, that can be interpreted as the end client controlling some activity. This this calls into question whether there's right to control work, and yep. b- they're taking time to parse through sometimes if they want to. Exactly. Even if the contract
0: is a hundred pages, the savvy adjudicator will find that little tiny clause on page seventy three in the footnote. That can hurt your case, and they'll bring it up. So it's, it's very important to be... Which is why we like the letters more, right? Exactly. That's why we like the letters more. And you know, USCIS notes from, I believe, it's the Vermont Service Center, have said that end client letters are sufficient in lieu of the requested contract. Um, so it's certainly something to consider when, when including So it's contracts. a good
1: idea for employers to actually create a form or a template of some kind for the end client... Where a lot of the information is is drawn in lines, for example, something which says beneficiaries' job duties, beneficiaries' H-1B employer, uh, purchase order number, statement of work. Or, or you know, uh, project duration, and add a sentence, all work of this employee is directly supervised by the H-1B employer. We are simply the third-party vendor client where the work is being performed. We do not mo- monitor the day-to-day operations because all hiring, firing, and all relevant and important decisions pertaining to this employee is done directly by the employee's direct employer. Something like that, if we could create, or the company could create this and send it to your clients, that would take care of hopefully comp- dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's because otherwise, when you just tell the end client do something, they'll say sorry, first of all, we don't have a process and a system, RHR HR won't let us, the reason we have, and we work with H1 consulting companies is so we don't have to deal with a whole bunch of HR, um, You know, jump through a bunch of hoops. So by making their lo- life easier, by holding their hand, by working with a law firm such as the Multi Law Firm, hopefully we can guide you and help you with some of that stuff.
2: You know, Sheila, I think uh, I, I agree with all that 100%. I, I think what a, a lot of my clients uh, try to proactively do if they can is to try and figure out what they can get and when they can get it. Sometimes they can just get very minimal information, only up front, and that's it. Other like cli- a simple
1: email confirming. Email, that,
2: right, something mm-hmm. like that. Other clients are saying, look, we will give you something if you need it. Show us an RFE, and we will give you a letter. And so I think just communicating up front maybe what some expectations are, I found a lot of my clients can help. It can just help them navigate their, their business and uh, relationships while also complying with immigration law. At the bare minimum, I think if you can't get any of this stuff, really this the new USCIS is really, like I said, with FDNS contacting pre-adjudication. They need some kind of proof of life from the end client or else they're going to deny the case. If you have you know, RFE responses, sometimes I'm writing, we don't have anything from the end client but the cli- my client the petitioner knows somebody at the end client with a name contact number hopefully job title and te- uh, uh, email and if fdns or uscis were to contact that person that person would have some information about who's working what who their employer is the, all these details that we've been talking about and in the RFE I'm writing and inviting almost FDNS to contact this person and check and they will tell and because th- their manual says that they're supposed to exhaust these resources before issuing RFE's because it would otherwise be a waste of resources clearly they're doing it and so I think the critical thing is just to make sure that all that communication is upfront uh, so this isn't a criminal trial they don't need to prove the hearsay and and testimony that's from the uh, the petitioner the employer saying This is the client, uh, client, end-client person who knows this information. You can contact him or her. I I think that is good enough. It should be good enough for the standard of proof that we're dealing with.
1: Thank you, Kevin. And, you know, as as sort of Kevin alluded to a little bit, even in the worst-case scenario, if the end-client where the work is being performed says according to our company policies, we are not allowed to share any of these details or this information. I think that's a, a That's a strong inference a, that it exists. That, that's a potential, that's at least, that means that there are contracts that exist, but overall, and whether they can give details about that, now, maybe there's ways, as I said, if the mid-vendor or the client that's directly, that has the agreement with them, provide a copy of the confidential agreement by xing out confidential information or a summary of the purchase order saying, here's the contract with the uh, the the end the client confirming that we do have a, a relationship of some kind, a contractual relationship of some kind. So there's ways to look at it. We know that post-Trump, post-January of 2017, They are looking much more carefully under the hood. And so uh, whether that's going to result in greater number of denials under the Buy American, Hire American policy where H-1Bs are being scrutinized and there's now a new committee that's going to focus on H-1B workers that they have said that President Trump has actually asked to create a separate committee to look at all of H-1B related issues and what that's going to result in, we don't know. But that process is still undergoing at this point. Next, jumping from the entire issue of employer-employee relationship and right of control, the second big, big issue is specialty occupation. You know, the qualifications of the person. Is this job truly as complex and as sophisticated as is required for an H-1B petition approval? So they're generally asking for more detailed job duties to confirm that the job requires normally a bachelor's degree or its equivalent or its foreign equivalent in a specialty occupation or in a specific specialty. Uh, USCIS often raises this query or question when the company is offering an IT position to an employee that has a degree that they believe is not directly related to the job or when the job code on the LCA indicates to the USCIS that it is something less or different than the bachelor's degree, which normally should be the minimum required for a particular job. So what what kinds of RFEs and what kinds of situations are we finding, TJ, uh, in this situation? So I think
0: what we're seeing frequently is that USCIS is questioning whether the beneficiary actually qualifies for the position, and they're, and what they're doing is they're, they're focusing on the beneficiary's field of study as listed on their degree. Um, in strong cases, there's a, there's a clear nexus between the, the field of study and the beneficiary's actual degree. So, for instance, the, the, the position requires it's an IT position and the beneficiary has a computer science degree. That's, that's, I think, the, the, the clearest type of case where it's the, the individual is clearly qualified for the position. You, then you get into the, these situations where it's, it's an IT job, but the beneficiary has, let's say, an MBA or an MBA with a concentration in an IT field. And, and these are types of cases that USCIS has tended to more highly scrutinize. And, and they're issuing requests for evidence specifically asking how this actually relates how the degree actually relates to the position. One thing that we're seeing, I think, a, a big trend in is whether a, an engineering degree is, is related to an IT position. So it, it used to be in the past you would, you would say that the position requires a, you know, an IT position, and you'd say that it requires you know, at least a bachelor's degree in an engineering field. Any of the engineering fields would, would work. Mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, all of those would, would qualify for the beneficiary for the position. But now what we're seeing is, is when when you state that as the requirement, USC is coming back and saying, no, no, sorry, mechanical engineering, that does not relate to, to this IT position.
1: We used to see them even 10, 15, 20 years ago, but it's sort of becoming more of a reason I think now more and more where they keep kind of looking, scrutinizing you under the magnifying glass. And I've
2: even seen scrutiny of electronics engineering mm-hmm. where you have to get expert testimony from a professor about how electronics engineering and that sort of thing is sort of the, the, the foundation or the grandfather of this other uh, computer science work that, that the individual is doing and really parse out coursework and mm-hmm. say how it's exactly. relevant to, to the job, like uh, course by course on their on exactly the, on their transcript.
0: So that, I think that goes into the, the the type of evidence that you can submit when you when you do get these these types of RFEs. One thing that you can you can submit is is a letter from an expert in the field. It's generally a professor in a you know who teaches a computer science in a computer science program or something like that who actually review the job duties and the beneficiary's education and say, hey, one, this position itself is a specialty occupation requiring a degree in a specific field. And also, two, that I, yeah, I reviewed the beneficiary's coursework. It's clear that the coursework that he or she took in, you know, in the electrical engineering program definitely qualifies this person to perform this job. Um, other types of evidence that you can submit are job advertisements for, for not only similar positions, but what USCIS wants to see is similar positions from similar companies in the industry. So if it's an IT consulting company with 50 employees, they kinda want to see, you know, job ads from, you know, IT consulting companies that have this that are about mid-size. Um, other types of evidence that you can submit is the DOL database, they publish certain information about particular positions. And you can point to that to say, hey, this require you know, this this type of position requires a degree in a certain field. One thing that I find is really helpful, and Kevin kind of. Uh, so, would we
1: do that in our firm? Would we go help the clients? Would what what would what would a yes. good law firm well, do for you to help so you? So,
0: what we do is we we you know we visit the DOL database, the Occupational Outlook Handbook, the ONET, and we pull the what they say is required for the job, what type of degree is required for the job, and then we, we use that in in an RFE response.
2: Along with, I think you were going to mention about the expert testimony, because saying how that coro- is corroborated with everything from DOL and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, exactly. they, they can't refuse that expert opinion in that scenario yeah, that, because that's an expert and
0: we're just lay people. Yeah, and, and one thing I, I like to really particularly do in our feed response is when you have this expert opinion, and not only does it corroborate the information that, that is found in DOL and ONET and, and all that stuff, but also, you know, we've got a, a computer science professor who's got 50 years of experience in the field, has published in numerous academic journals, and has taught courses at leading universities who better to tell you whether this is a a specialty occupation or the beneficiary is is qualified than this person? USCIS adjudicator, no, you you don't know more than this guy, so I'd like to specifically point that out in RFE responses. Another thing I find is helpful is also, you know, when you're you're talking about the beneficiary's qualifications and whether their degree is actually related to position, go through each job duty and point back to the, the course or courses that allowed that individual to be able to to perform that that duty. And I think that helps. So you
1: actually dissect it and parcel it out in each case, even when filing the initial petition, or definitely in an RFE?
2: Definitely in an RFE response. Yeah, only answer a question when asked, I think, and yeah. that kind of thing. So if you get, what, yeah, I think what TJ is talking about is if you get a high level of scrutiny like this, sometimes you have to weave the blanket mm. yarn by yarn for them in some cases uh, com- compared to, to others, especially if you have factors like it's a mechanical engineering degree mm. and there is some IT coursework in there and really getting an expert to maybe even combine that with some experience to, so in that kind of scenario, you would really want to parse it out more so than the electronics engineering, uh, would Which is a little bit the the Nexus is really there on the face of it more so. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And I think it it helps it helps Yosyus visualize.
1: Okay. So let's look at the next issue, which is this new trend about the level one RFE issue that suddenly sprung up based on two uh, factors. One was that extremely sneaky, annoying memo that the USCIS conveniently released on March, dated March, not even released. They released it in early April, but they dated it March 31st, 2017, uh, when it was way too late for most employers to f- obtain a fresh LCA, which takes seven to nine days, and to file a fresh H-1B cap subject case, uh, saying that we're just clarifying policy that always existed and memorializing something which is of course a big question mark, whether that's true or that's totally not true. Um, and the second point, of course, is uh, Trump's April 18th, 2017 executive order of Buy American and Hire American, direct, which is a mandate directed to different government agencies for them to suggest, within quotes, to suggest reforms to help ensure that H-1B visas are awarded to the most skilled or highest paid petition beneficiaries. What's really upsetting and aggravating is nowhere in the H-1B statute, law, regulations, guidance is there a requirement for us to show that the person is in fact the most skilled or the highest paid beneficiaries. And I have a feeling that this whole memo and all this thing is sort of trying to be intertwined with this new sort of post-Trump era sort of factors. So Kevin, if I can have you analyze, dissect a little bit more and sort of try to respond to employer concerns on these issues.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, everything that TJ had been mentioning about specialty occupation, this is introducing maybe a new dimension to that. Up until now, what we've really been talking about with specialty occupation is explaining how the job is sophisticated and complex, and these are the kinds of duties that you could only learn uh, 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 with an academic background with a bachelor's in a a particular field of study. Now, what USCIS is saying, and it seems to align with the things that you were talking about with the Trump executive order and the policy memo that says that came out the day before the cap season, you know, uh, was done, basically, that says an entry level computer programmer position would not, quote, generally qualify as a position in a specialty occupation. So what they're calling into question is whether that particular occupational code could even qualify as a job that normally requires a bachelor's degree in a specific specialty. I think that what's something that's more alarming is another uh, line in that memo. It's actually a footnote. And the footnote says this. It says that officers, USCIS officers, are reminded that, quote, USCIS must determine whether the attestations of the LCA, the content on the LCA, correspond and support the H-1B petition. Accordingly, USCIS officers must also review the LCA to ensure that the wage level designated by the petitioner, corresponds to the proffered position. If a petitioner designates a position as a level one, entry-level position, for example, such an assertion will likely contradict a claim that the proffered position is particularly complex, specialized, or unique compared to other positions Other positions within the same occupation. I think this is really alarming language. It's saying that the use of level one is... Uh, a sort of determination that the job can't be that complex or sophisticated. So it's creating this like Goldilocks position between being too sophisticated for level one, but not being sophisticated enough to be determined as a specialty occupation. I I I myself, I I have a couple of these RFEs where I'm seeing this as a second RFE issued in some cases. First RFE is, why is this a specialty occupation? Here's why it's so complex and sophisticated. And then the second RFE comes back and says, Ah, well, these, yes, it's very sophisticated. Thank you for clarifying that. But according to the Department of Labor guidance, and they cite this to this thing, and I think misinterpret it uh, from 2009, that says level one is defined as a beginning level, quote, beginning level employees who only have a basic understanding of the occupation. The DOL guidance also says that level one is uh, for employees whose work, quote, work is closely monitored and reviewed for accuracy and so if the beneficiary is working at a third-party work location, USCIS uh, can make this claim that, well, it's not clear how this person is, quote, closely monitored and reviewed for accuracy because that's what level one is and that's what you selected on the, on the LCA. So I think this is just a, a new environment where we kind of have to look at these job duties in a more uh, qualitative way. To make sure that they're presented in at that in that goldilocks kind of uh, uh, position it's just a new analysis that i don't think was really something that was a requirement before buy american hire american and this memo came out um also it's a consideration of well you know if it's off-site work if it requires a lot of decision making if it's more than just a basic understanding of the job that's required in this new market how uscis is treating it the new uscis is treating it do we need to uh, make sure that the wage level corresponds to the level of responsibility that's required as interpreted by the new USCIS. Uh, having said that, I, and I know Sheila agrees and probably most of us agree, I think this is uh, not a correct interpretation uh, of this memo. It's just uh, w- when you see language repeated more than once, it's, it's an indication of a trend because it's a boilerplate that more than one adjudicator has, um, and it seems to align with things that go all the way up you know policy level with USCIS with the memo president uh, executive level all the way with the president and the executive order specifically saying like you said Sheila that H-1B should be more of a merit base as opposed to meeting a minimum requirement so
1: very and that alarming. is fine if they want to do that but they would have to go to Congress, exactly. the legislature to change the law mister Trump can not be trumpeting around town saying I'm gonna change the rule because I am the executive and I have the right to determine when to bring in foreign nationals for na- terrorist or security reasons. That certainly is his prerogative, but this is not. This is an economic business H-1B issue. The law, the Congress, the statute has four criteria to satisfy when is a job considered an H-1B specialty occupation. Most of you on this conference call hopefully are familiar with what is the definition of an H-1, what What does the statute, and what do the regulations say is an H-1B position. And whether it's level one, for example, a lawyer, an engineer, a doctor, a level one lawyer cannot do the job without not just a bachelor's degree, but a bachelor's followed by a JD degree and a bar admission. So for the government to say, oh, level one means this lawyer is very low level, doesn't know everything. We have to basically guide them. Hence, it's not an H-1B specialty occupation. Sorry, that's not the way the law is. I think if we file a lawsuit, we whether we file an individual lawsuit in appropriate cases, a class action lawsuit, whether this level one becomes an ongoing is- issue, I think we need to hold the government's feet to the fire and make sure that they cannot change the rules of the game in the middle of the game just to suit them and a person that doesn't understand how the law and the constitution and the balance of powers works under the in the U.S. legal system. As you can see, I'm quite feisty about this whole (laughs) issue. Okay, so the next really big hot topic or the issue that they keep raising in RFEs is about the person's, the beneficiary, the employee's maintenance of valid non-immigrant status in the United States so that the USCIS can decide whether or not to approve the person's change of status or extension of status in the U.S., It's obviously a little bit more complicated when you're changing status as opposed to extending your status. For example, if you're changing or transitioning from an F-1 full-time student visa to an H-1B, either part-time or full-time, et cetera. And when a student attends school as an F-1 student, there's a particular type of training called the curricular practical training, which many of you probably are aware of, where the student can engage in a type of work authorization directly connected with the course of study or the education. So with that, let me ask TJ Mm -hmm. to please sort of discuss this a little bit and what does CPT mean? Sure,
0: sure. So CPT is essentially um, work that's during the program of study. It's not like after the program of study, like OPT or something like that. And it's It's defined as an alternative work study, internship, cooperative education, or any other type of required internship or practicum that is offered by sponsoring employers through agreements with the particular school. And this this CPT needs to be directly related to the field of study and an integral part of the established curriculum at the school. And, and what does an integral part of the established curriculum mean? It's, it means that the, the CPT is either for credit or it's actually required by the course of study. So sometimes the course of study will require you to do this type of internship, and that would be something that would be considered integral. Um, there's also, you know, generally CPT need, cannot be, you can't start CPT unless you've been you know, attending school for a full year, full time. But for graduate students, they can actually participate in CPT without actually having completed a full academic year of study if the graduate program actually requires immediate participation in CPT. So sometimes you will see requests for evidence on this issue. Hey, we, we note that you started CPT immediately. You know, please you know, provide evidence that it's required Immediate participation is actually required by your school.
1: Okay. Thank you, TJ and Kevin. What about the OPT part? Or um, s- let's continue CPT and then oh,
2: right. Well, I, yeah I just want to say something about the CPT part of it because uh, the, the confusion I think that happens here You know, we see a lot of these during during cap season because one of the you know, F1 to H1B uh, transition is happening for a lot of folks during the H1B cap season and sometime at some point while in F1 status someone may have been working in CPT immediate participation and get like you said the RFE that's asking about this the student that's now the h trying to be the H1B beneficiary in this case is saying well why is this a problem the school approved it and I think what we've what we've seen is that there there are some some schools that um, are uh, maybe a little bit more liberal in their application of the what's immediate Uh, requirement, uh, or or why why sometimes it's required for the curriculum, and USCIS may disagree with what the DSO's determination will be, or that particular school's policy on the issue, and they're not punishing the school because the school's, you know, got the authorization from the government to issue the CPT. They seem to be sometimes punishing the students for attending the schools that go to Mm -hmm. that that issue CPT kind of uh, more cavalier than other, other schools, so... It's just something to kind of be aware of, and it could translate into the H-1B petition could still be approved, but you may have to travel and get the visa before coming back in and and working on that H-1B. To
1: get back into status. So quickly, in terms of the documents to provide uh, in RFEs Mm -hmm. relating to CPT, what kinds of those documents? uh?
0: Sure, sure, Sure. So some of the documents you want to see is the employer, you know, the cooperative agreement that the employer has entered into with the school for that CPT employment. Um, You also want to see evidence from the school that CPT is integral to the course of study um, and or that the student is receiving actual credit for it. Um, Certain things you can do, you can show the transcripts that show that CPT was was actually required, they got credit for it. You could show the the syllabus to show that this was actually required for that particular course of study. Um, One thing you also want to look at is whether when the person started CPT, whether they're actually authorized by the DSO at that time to engage in CPT. And how is someone authorized to engage in CPT? It's by the issuance of the I-20 that authorizes CPT and it'll authorize CPT for a, a certain period of time. So you wanna make sure that when you're engaged in CPT, you don't go over or you, know, you don't start before the time starts, you don't go over. Um, and you also wanna show how your, you know, your, your work is actually related to your degree program. So we do see that frequently where if someone's got a, a business degree and they're going to work on CPT in an IT field. And that's, you know, something that that you're going to, it's going to be highly scrutinized, and, you, and you're probably going to see an RFE on that type of issue. The student will basically
2: be working very closely with the International Student Office to get the stuff needed to answer it, basically. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So next issue that we kind of often talk about is the OPT question. So if someone's using the OPT or a STEM optional practical training after the completion of the the entire degree, when you get the one year, 12 months OPT or the additional 24 months of STEM OPT, the USCIS could ask for evidence that the U.S. degree is directly related to the work. And I think we already kind of touched upon this briefly before with respect to H1 RFEs. But this can be obviously a problem for a student that had a combination of education with two different degrees that can combine and sort of kind of equate to maybe a bachelor's in electrical engineering or sort of like a computer science or a combination of education and experience to show that the person has the equivalent of a bachelor's degree um, for the H1 petition filing. So for the change of status to be approved, the person has to show that the U.S. degree is directly related to the OPT or the STEM OPT work.
2: Yeah, Sheila, I think I see where, uh, where we see this kind of come up a lot are those, I think TJ was the one who mentioned it, the uh, MBA with IT concentration. Mm-hmm. Very often, someone will get a, one of these degrees, be working in CPT in an IT field and, uh, the, uh, or, and or OPT in, in, uh, in the IT field. And the question is, how is this computer, job, computer science job directly related to your MBA degree? And, oh, well, there's an IT concentration. But... But the, the field is business administration. That's The, con- the concentration is IT, and, and, and it's also a mix. Like you said, a combination. USCIS is cracking down on that and saying, well, just because we approved it for your uh, or, or the school uh, DSO approved it for OPT purposes, or like TJ said, maybe even earlier for CPT purposes, we're not saying that you maintain status to use this now as an H-1B. And like you said, they could also call in a question whether this degree that you have, if it's the only IT thing that you have... Even qualifies the beneficiary for the job to begin with. So it could come up as a maintenance of status issue, like we're talking about now, or uh, whether even the beneficiary qualifies. But I think the main place we see this is like an MBA with an IT concentration or something similar to that kind of uh, situation. So the
1: student would basically or the employee would immediately have to stop working, travel abroad, pick up the visa stamp. Once USCIS made a a finding that it was like not approving the extension, Mm -hmm. even if the petition is approved without that, they would just go abroad, come back, get the new visa stamp, and get back into H-1 status in the U.S. Okay, so I know we're close to 40 minutes, and we try to wrap up in around 45 minutes, so we're very cognizant of everybody's time uh, with respect to... Uh, middle of the day. If Go I ahead. I
2: just mention, uh, it was something that I just kind of thought about just because we were talking about maintenance of status. And just one thing I wanted to mention, just really super quickly, because it comes up a lot in practice, is uh, when people are filing amendments. That's another thing about maintenance of status. Increasingly, we're seeing that USCIS is cracking down on if somebody moves to a new work location prior to the filing of the amendment and that chronology uh... that sequence of events happening in that order is becoming problematic again the change the extension of status could be denied so the petition could still be approved for consular processing so that's an issue that i think employers just kind of be, need to be made aware of that filing an amendment after the change has occurred is technically too late and USCIS is is seeing it more and more especially with these fdns calls and emails and stuff again pre-adjudication
1: Yeah. So one of the overarching issues that we see with USCIS RFEs in general is that they almost make it look like the employer has to meet a very, very high threshold, almost like if it's a criminal case, the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, or like at least clear and convincing evidence. But in fact, in a civil case, in a U.S. immigration law filing type of case, The legal standard of proof is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not clear and convincing. It's just known as the preponderance standard. So I'm going to ask TJ to explain what the preponderance standard is. And so when you as an employer, if you hire a multi-law firm or some good lawyer or you have your own internal legal in-house counsel that focuses on immigration law, hopefully they will know how to respond to the government and not just buckle under, put your tail between your legs and say, okay, get me a denial, I'll file. No, fight it. Because majority of cases, when you fight, you can actually win them. Even in this climate, we need to absolutely fight and challenge the government when they are doing something wrong. So what's the standard, TJ?
0: So the standard is really just that it's more likely than not. So, for instance, if, you know, if you're, you're questioning whether the position is a specialty occupation, well, the, I'm the adjudicator, eh, it doesn't really seem like it, it may not seem like it, but it also may seem like it, okay. it is a specialty occupation requiring this degree, then, and then technically that has met the standard of proof. It's got to be at least 51%, or, or I think more particularly, 50.00001%, it's just a tiny bit more likely than not, then, then that case should be approved. And I think what we're seeing in practice, though, is that they're, they're really holding petitioners to a much higher standard than that. Um, you really need to, pr- pr- you know, prove much more than that, and that's what I'm seeing it's in, in these cases. Worth reminding them;
2: it cost, it's a constant yeah. reminder. Mm-hmm. Worth. Reminding. Yeah,
0: and sometimes I think that just go they just, they, they, they read that section, it just goes over their head and they just, you know, don't really pay much attention to it. And, you know, but they're, they're not allowed to specifically just dismiss the evidence that, that's provided without specifically explaining why it is insufficient. Um, sometimes you'll see in, in RFEs or even denials, whether well, they just gloss over what was provided. That, you know, you, you provided extremely detailed duties. And they're coming back and saying, these details, these duties are very generic. We can't tell what the person actually does. And I think part of that is also because they're, they're working off of templates. Um, so they're not really necessarily always reviewing all of the evidence that's been provided. And, and even w- when they do, they need to provide specific explanations as to why that evidence provided is not sufficient. So lots of times in you know, RFE responses, we'll specifically tell them, hey, you just said that you just gave this generic reason why the evidence isn't is sufficient. This doesn't allow us an opportunity to actually substantively respond to that issue. Mm-hmm. So you know you, you're really required u s is, is required to do this, and we're seeing frequently that they're they're not. Um, in, in addition, sometimes we see, and I think, Kevin, you may have had something like this recently where you know they're just saying, you know, the mere representation of the petitioner is, is not sufficient. I think your case may have been a third party or, or something to that effect. Yeah, that was a really interesting um, one. But, but in fact, like you know, testimony from the petitioner signed under oath is actually evidence. good evidence. It's actually evidence, and that can help it meet that 51% standard. But, but lots of times we're seeing so they would say the,
1: oh mere self-sovering science statement signed by the employer should not be sufficient evidence well no it is under the yeah. b- 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 preponderance standard officer you have to give it the weight tell us why you're not looking at it tell us why because you can't just act like it's some kind of you know autocracy mm-hmm. dictatorship where yeah this is our standard and we're not going to follow what the law says okay. Uh, next, what about the STEM, um, the the, the timeframes you have? Yeah, just here. some
2: other strategic considerations real quickly here. Um, usually with an RFE, uh, the, it provides 87 days to respond. And I think it's worth just reminding folks that just because that, that may seem like a long time, but a lot of these issues require some thinking and and, and soft asking maybe of, of, of end clients. And it's important to... Uh, start dealing with the problem sooner rather than later because it's, it becomes more and more difficult when there's only 30 days left and then 15 days left and then four days left to be trying to uh, uh, get get a response. Uh, if, the, if it's a notice of intent to deny, which is something that can come up, that only gives you 30 days to respond. So. Uh, act quickly as soon as you receive either of these kinds of correspondence from USCIS.
1: Okay. So as we're on the last stretch, trying to wrap up within the 45 minutes, CAP-GAP related issues. Most of you are aware that the student, once they file the petition, uh, if their status expires um, after April 1st, but before October uh, 1st, when the case is actually processed, they would be able to stay here and keep working. But if the student's case is either denied withdrawn not selected in the lottery then the student actually only gets a 60 day grace period um, if the student has OPT and was working on the cap status the student must stop working from the within 10 days after the denial or the withdrawal of the H1 petition what about H stem extensions
0: so so stem extensions are for students who have a degree in a science, technology, engineering, or math field, and they used to be able to get you know, a 17-month additional extension of their OPT work authorization, but recently that has been increased to actually 24 months, so two full years. And the, the benefit of this is if, if an individual is not selected in the H-1B cap, they can stay here and continue to work pursuant to that STEM extension and get another shot at the cap during the next year. Okay. And another thing to to be aware of is when you're filing these change of status requests and if there are issues with your CPT, if they find issues with your your STEM extension or your OPT, that if they find that you did not maintain your status, they'll make a finding that you have violated your status. and, And at that point, you'll lose your CPT, your OPT, your STEM extension, whatever it may be. And you would be essentially in the United States in violation of the law and also unlawfully present. Yeah. So I think I think one thing to take in consideration when responding to an RFE, if the RFE has an issue in regards to you know maintenance of F one status or CPT, and also some other issue,
2: have, I, have a lawyer read the language. I think to yeah. know whether it's what what kind of consequence. Because just because it's denied doesn't mean you know the the, the consequences could be more or less uh, than you think they really are. Yeah, and,
0: and I think also another thing to take in consideration is if you know if if you're, you're concerned about losing your CPT or OPT in an RFE response, instead, withdraw your request for the actual status benefit. Because if it's if it's ultimately denied and the H-1B itself is also denied, then you've got nothing to fall back on. So that's also something, a, a strategy, strategy. To, to, to take into consideration.
1: Well, so as you can see, there's lots of smart, brilliant lawyers and different viewpoints and interpretations on how to juggle the different options for you as an employer, trying to hire qualified uh, skilled workers in a, a, in an economy when unemployment is at an all-time historic low that we've never seen in practically decades, certainly after the Great Recession. Uh, we are, and I'm sure all of you are hearing about greater scrutiny with respect to H-1 cases, RFEs, possible denials if you don't plan and strategize and really figure out how to respond properly, especially for those with the employer-vendor-client EVC model. We're seeing a lot of investigations. Site visits, uh, internal compliance is so much like what they say. Prevention is always cheaper than cure. Try to do something where you can save money in the long run particularly with respect to your company's I-9 forms, keeping your public access files. Don't mix up, for example, your H-1 petition files for the employee with your other public access documents, because that's like a red flag right away to, and you're giving unnecessary additional information to the investigator, which can open up a whole host of problems and open the Pandora's box for you, your company and your employees. Uh, We are seeing more and more, as I said earlier in the start of this uh, uh, teleconference, that we had a very interesting panel with the Immigration Customs Enforcement, part of the Department of Homeland Security, with Homeland Security Investigations, the chief of the unit uh, from in Washington, D.C., talking about how they are really targeting technology companies, consulting companies, because they feel they can make a lot of money because people are not carefully doing what they are supposed to do in such companies. So plan how to discuss with your front desk receptionist or your front desk people, not to get panicky if somebody knocks on their door, if there are potential problems, if someone comes with a uniform and a badge and says, show me all your documents. Remember, contact your lawyer, ask for some additional time. Um, ask make for sure. Identification. You, ask mentioned. for identification. Ask for the name of the officer. Ask which unit and which the office they're s- scheduled to get information from them and tell them that you have an accompanying attorney, a law firm, a lawyer th- that deals with these issues who needs to be present because you almost always mm-hmm. have the right to counsel in most cases. And most important, avoid panic both with your front desk receptionist and with your employees because if the word gets around that you are being investigated as an employer, that's going to add additional panic and some of your employees may leave the sinking ship. So be smart, be careful. Prevention is always cheaper than cure. And we hope that we were able to share some wonderful tips and advice to help you to focus on strategy, on ideas, and to constantly monitor and evolve trends that are changing. On behalf of Kevin Andrews, TJ Sachet, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm family, we thank you for joining us for today's teleconference and we look forward to continuing to help you and your company so that you can focus on your business and we can help you with all your immigration legal issues. Thank you and have a great day.